working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everybody, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast, Working Drummer. Today my guest is drummer Rick Brothers. In the 15 years that Rick spent in Nashville, Tennessee, he built an impressive resume working with many notable artists such as Ty Herndon, Joel Saunier, Sarah Jones, Doug Stone, Thompson Square, Gretchen Wilson, and Colt Ford. A few years ago, along with his wife, he decided to restructure his life and find a new place to live and found himself on the west coast of Florida and within a matter of months found himself working as a full-time drummer again. Most notably, he's been touring with one of the former singers of Bad Company, Bryant Howe. As always, you can find us at WorkingDrummer.net to find out more information about this episode and all the episodes that we've done so far in the last three and a half years. Subscribe to us on iTunes. You can find us now on YouTube. We are slowly building our library of past episodes. When you're on iTunes, please subscribe. This helps us grow. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook. If you use the hashtag WorkingDrummer, We'll include you on Instagram and our stories. If you want to support what Zach and I are doing here at the Working Drummer Podcast, there's a couple ways that you can do that. On the homepage of our website, workingdrummer.net, you can find a button for PayPal. There's also a button that is a link to our Patreon page. Patreon is an easy and convenient way to support the podcast on a regular basis. Donations start at a dollar and you have access to the bonus material that we're providing on a monthly basis from past guests. As always, any donation in any amount is greatly appreciated. So here you are, my conversation with Rick Brothers. So I left Nashville uh, about five, four or five years ago. Um, I had been on the road with Colt Ford for over five years. And uh, once that once that ended, I sat there in Nashville and I played locally as much as I cared to and uh I had just I'd been there close to 18 almost 19 years in Nashville and um I was like well I can go get another gig another artist gig and get on a bus for 200 days a year and uh be away from my family and be away from my puppies and and honestly, as you get older, it just makes it harder and harder and harder, especially when that's what you do for a living. Um, it's, uh, it's a very blessed living, as we that do it and have done it know. But you also know that um, any day it could end. Um, there's little to no longevity. There are for a few, and, and some of my peers that have had gigs, 15 plus years uh, with the same artist. It's amazing. My hat's off to them. I mean, they are a rare breed and I really applaud that. And that says a lot about them as people and as players and and all of that. But most of the times when gigs end in Nashville, it has nothing to do with your ability because right. if you weren't, well, you wouldn't have it in the first place. So, uh, you know, one day somebody might come in and don't like the color of your shirt and say, we're making a change. You know, it's, that's a little extreme. It's a little silly, but it's very kind of true. So anyway, 
And uh, when my when my gig with Colt ended, I sat there and go, do I want to do more of this being a 50 year old man, um, get on a tour bus and be gone? Or do I want to go put on a pair of shorts and go play drums by the ocean and uh, live by the beach? And um, so after me and my wife talked about it for about a year. I finally was like, you know what? I'm just going to go down and see what the kind of options are. And I, I went on the East Coast and I went on the West Coast and I decided on the West Coast. And um, you know, this being a a tourist destination, there's music everywhere, much like Nashville. The West Coast of Florida. Yes, sir. Right, yes. right. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Being, I, I, I mean, I researched all the way down from. Jacksonville to Daytona to, uh, you know, uh, down to Melbourne. I have a lot of good friends that are musicians that live in Melbourne. Uh, and I also have friends that live on the West coast of Florida in the, uh, Tampa, St. Pete, Sarasota area. And when my wife and I came down and researched, we just kind of liked this side of the, of the state better. So that's where we ended up. And, uh, so when I came down here, I truly left my wife in Nashville, rented a Airbnb for six weeks, and uh, came down and just hit the road and said, uh, "What is available to someone with what I do? What's what's the kind of work here?" And uh, I made a lot of amazing friends, and uh, the actual one of my dearest friends, uh, who is co-owner of Crush Drums and artist relations with Crush Drums was playing in the band down here um, and he asked me hey I hear you're here do you want to do you want to do something uh, you know in a country cover band and I said no <laughs> and he said <laughs> and he said well but this band's really good the guy is, is great um, and uh, he said he went to Nashville recorded albums um and uh, the name of the band is Tom Jackson Band, and, and Tom has two or three albums out. And when I went and I sat in with the band for the first time, it was the closest to Nashville musicians that I had heard down here. Um, okay. The band was great. Tom's great. Um, and he had a following and had a substantial uh, gig schedule. So I'm like, you know what? Okay, I'm in. So I've been doing that for the last two and a half years, I guess, and uh, do that mainly as my as my mainstay gig here. I'm still I teach out of my house, um, and I do that as my mainstay. And then out of the blue, about six months ago, I got a call from uh, a guy in Nashville that I had never known, and he said, um, "Hey, uh, Brian Howe." First thing, the bad company is looking for a drummer, and everybody says you're the guy. And I said, um, it's funny because I've heard about this gig before, uh, but it just keeps coming back to me. And they're like, well, everybody says you're the guy because they needed a drummer who sang, and I sing. And I, yeah. as much as I sound froggy, I can sing pretty high. And uh, so I have to sing all the higher parts above him, which is pretty crazy to be quite honest but so <laughs> they were going to ask me if i was interested and i said of course i am and uh we were going to do 
rehearsals. It worked out that we didn't even do a rehearsal. Uh, I mean, a, a, an audition. And it got so close to the gig, they're like, we're just flying you to Nashville, uh, rehearse and go do the gig. And six and a half months, eight months later, I'm still doing the gig and I love it. So I, you know, I thought those days were over. I thought a Nashville artist gig was over, but now we just did the Monsters of Rock cruise in February. Awesome. Uh, where I was on the boat with, uh, YNT and Extreme and Queens Rike and Tesla and, it's just, it was really cool because everything I had got to do on a national level at this point had been in country. Right. Now I'm on the different, uh, just a total different spectrum. So it was very cool to do that. And, um, Brian, Brian's awesome. <laughs> he's almost, um, well, I don't know. He's got to be in his mid to late sixties and sings as good as anybody I've ever worked with. He's amazing. Well, t- can you tell me how different this gig is to the country gigs that you've done? I mean, we'll get into that a little bit, but you know, you you worked with Gretchen Wilson for a long time, and then, of course, uh, you know a little bit with uh, Thompson Square and Ty Herndon and some other uh, national artists of note, and then lastly with with Colt Ford. But I mean, how is working in this? you know, legendary rock singer band situation, how does that differ from the Nashville thing? Is there anything uh, significant? Well, the, yes. Uh, the thing in Nashville was uh, I was, <laughs> excuse me, on a, I was on a tour bus with 12 to 13 people uh, 200 days a year. This is all fly dates. Everything is back lines. Um, I, I get on a plane with a pair of, uh, you know, with my, my, stick bag and I have a rider that when I get there everything's pretty much set up I tweak it and um, I you know I'm, I fly in the day before I get up uh, I go do a sound check do the show then 75 to 90 minute show come back and I'm home the following day so with that respect um, it's much less time demanding mm. um, the money is more lucrative in the rock world, um, yeah. from, I mean, for the most part. Um, and, um, I, I have to say, it's like one of the reasons why I chose to do this is I always thought it would be cool when, when I got off the road going like, you know, I would love to play in a band that I grew up in was influenced by Boston, <laughs> uh, Kansas, you know, I mean, something, you know, ridiculous like that, but, when I got a call and it's like singer from bad company, I'm like, Holy, how many times have we played? Can't get enough of your love. I know, or, man. That's one or, of my favorites. Or love or, or I mean, you well, name it. Bad, uh, bad com- company. Or bad company itself. I mean, yeah. Just, just playing those songs with the guy who did it. I get to play Holy water. And you know, if you needed somebody with the guy who wrote it, um, and I have to sing his part, you know. Um, so to me, that's very humbling. Um, actually, I've been very blessed to work with great singers. Crescent was an amazing, one of the best female singers in country, especially for what she did. Ty Herndon is one of the best fe- or the best male singers in the genre. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, Colt was, he was a kind of a trendsetter. You know, I mean, no, when Cole came out, no one was doing what he was doing. So 
I feel very blessed. I, and Keith and Shauna from Thompson Square, amazing singers, amazing songwriters. So I've very, I've been very fortunate to not ever have to do a gig to, although I used it to make a living, but I mean, I've been very fortunate to be able to work with good artists that I considered my friends that were at the top of their craft. Yeah. And Brian and Brian fits right in that. You know, it's like uh, Bad Company, iconic, iconic band, you know. Um, and it's like when we did the Monsters of Rock cruise, one thing I noticed is that all the bands I went to see, every song in our set, I promise you, Matt, you could sing every word to it. You know, I mean, every word to it. Because every song I play is a hit. It was right. a hit. And... Um, how, how cool is that? You know, I mean, that's pretty cool to be able to say, you know, I play with a guy who wrote this, sang this, and even though I've played it a hundred times, I never got to play it with him, you know? Well, you know, Paul Rogers is obviously another amazing, iconic. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, he's, he's you know, he's iconic. Um, here's the one thing I can only say about that is that uh, Brian can cover uh, Paul Rogers' song. I really doubt that Paul could cover Brian's songs, and that, that's no cut. It's just it's a different thing. I mean, Paul. I mean, if you Google if you needed somebody or Holy Water or mm-hmm. Walk Through Fire, which were all those mega hits by by Bad Company when Brian was the lead singer and main writer for it. They, it's just a different type of voice. And uh, his voice is one of those 80s, uh, just rock, high. I mean, it's it's amazing. And him at his age to still do that every night, just, it kills me. I mean, it's it's amazing. Well, there's Amazing. some there's some good footage on YouTube of you guys performing, and it's 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 incredible, man. I mean, Brian sounds killer. Uh, just for just for perspective, he was he was the singer from 1986 to 1994. Is that correct? Uh, I believe that's exactly the time, you know. Uh-huh. And before that, he 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 sang for Ted Nugent. Okay. Yeah, and which was really cool because we did a road trip one time, and I was in the car with Brian. And Ted called him, and he was on speaker. And I was like, how cool is it? I get to be able to ride with, you know, with uh, Brian Howe and talk to Ted Nugent on on speakerphone. <laughs> uh, like, that was pretty Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is. Not too many people I mean, can say that. That's cool. Of, well, it's a little different than Nashville. And I did some pretty amazing things in Nashville, which I you know, uh, Playing with heart and uh, and and run DMC and I I never I never dreamed any of that to be be possible. It is interesting though because I've heard this many times before that you know country music and the rock world there's um, there's a disparate disparity between the the money that's that's spent and and can be made in those different genres. I mean. We have we both have mutual friends that have done work in both genres, and the pay scale sometimes can be a lot different. 
and especially with new artists and um, you know I meet my share of young drummers in their 20s and early 30s and they're not making a lot of money when you look at their Instagram account and the pictures of the stadiums they're playing and the shows that they're playing, you're thinking, that's badass, that's cool, man. And then you, you find out they're not making very much money per show. And there's no per diem, you know, or, or there's no, there's they're not on salary and there's nothing else going on. And some of these people who are doing these rock gigs are, are making a lot more. It's just something to keep in mind, you know. Well, you know, I mean, it's a funny thing. I think it is just a, it's a, the mindset in Nashville. Um, you know, it's like, I, I, I can't say a lot um, about the last few years in Nashville because like I've pretty much been removed from the, uh, any kind of relevant relevancy there for probably about five years now. I mean, my last artist gig, yeah, I mean, it was probably four years ago with Colt and, okay. uh, after that, you know, I had done some internal gigs. I'd worked with a girl from from The Voice and was doing stuff like that. But the unfortunate thing about, I mean, and I, you know, I moved to Nashville in basically 2000, in November 1999, so basically 2000. And I left there in 2015, 16. Yeah. Um, the, the whole dynamic has changed. Um, yes. I, and I'm I'm saying this as hearsay. I don't know this as uh, as a fact, but I hear people go there and pay to play now just to be, you know, uh, recognized. And I think, you know, it's funny. Remember when that Nashville that show called Nashville came out? Mm-hmm. It seemed like after that, it became like Nashville was the new hip place to go, and everybody who had. Uh, an acoustic guitar and thought they were a songwriter got on a bus and headed there and was, um, you know, just waiting for that next thing to happen. Mm -hmm. And although, I I mean, maybe some of that worked, I don't know. Um, I know that even in 2000, when I got there, um, the talent pool was amazing. And um, I I had started out working uh, a side job at, was called Thoroughbred Music, which actually now is a Sam Ash. Sam Ash out. Sam Ash bought out Thoroughbred Music in Nashville, but I worked there. And within three months, the uh, drum department manager had left and went to Pearl Drums to work. So I became drum department manager, and within a couple of months, I got hired on at Pearl. And I, this was about a year and a half into my into my uh, living in Nashville and everybody told me there that Nashville was like a five or six year town, meaning that once you got there to get on the level of finding that big national artist, it would probably take you five to six years. Um, Just networking, being in the right place at the right time, just paying your dues, you know, and everybody, when you walking into the bar, everybody knowing who you were. Um, and I cut that in half. I had my first artist gig with Ty Herndon. Well, actually, Joel Sonier, but my, my first artist gig that I went on the road with was in about a little shy of three years um, with Ty Herndon, and he still had a deal on Sony Records at the time, uh, an amazing singer, uh, really big in the 90s. But uh, when I got that gig... Uh, 
I was a little shy of three years of me being there. So I mm-hmm. thought, well, I cut the learning curve. I thought, you know, I cut the learning curve a little bit. And the thing about that is, is that, <clears throat> excuse me, um, is the cool thing about getting those gigs is it's a different, it's a, it's a different uh, click, if I can use, I'm trying to think of a better word, but, you know, it's like you have your Broadway players and know all the Broadway players and they know all that. But when you get out on the road on a national tour and you start playing that, there's a different other set of players that you became, that you become a part of. And then you're in that clip. And then, you know, then you're on that B-level artist gig. And then you get something like when I got with Gretchen, where we were playing stadiums with Keith Urban and Kenny Chesney and, uh, you know, and Uncle Cracker. And it's like, and then there's those level of players that know each other. So it's, it's just a different level of people. So once they want you, you know, it's like, I, I, I remember, I remember this, Matt, very, very, uh, vividly when I came to Nashville, I'd been there maybe six to eight months. And you know, and most of us that go to Nashville are big ducks in a small pond where we're at. Yes. <laughs> like where I was yeah. at Wisconsin, where I was at in Wisconsin, I had 30 plus students a week. I, my local band was one of the top local bands. You know, I was, I was at the pinnacle of where I could have been where I was. And everybody's like, man, you need to go somewhere. You need to go, you know, you need to go to Nashville. You need to do this. So I went and I researched it. And I went and I was widely received really quickly. Like, dude, who are you? Can you can you fill in for me next week? And I'm like, no, I don't live here. And they're like, well, you should. Mm-hmm. Then I would go to the next one where somebody would get me a set up in. And they're like, man, who are you? Where are you from? Uh, I, can you be my drummer? And I'm like, I don't live here. And they're like, man, you should. So I literally went, told my band that I quit. And then two months later I was in Nashville. And so, like I said, I was, for lack of better words, I was kind of a big deal, or at least I was at the top of my game in Wisconsin. I had my own band. We were regionally known. We had radio play. We had, we had done a theme for a local radio station It was like, I knew that if I had, and one of my last gigs I remembered is my band opened for the Doobie Brothers. And, uh, and I thought if I played 1999 for these people one more time, I'm going to shoot myself. And, uh, I, I just have to do something different. And so when I went to Nashville, it was square zero. Doesn't mm-hmm. matter who you are or who you think you are. No one knows you. Yeah. And you are back to playing for $30 plus tips and just proving yourself again, you know? And, uh, but it was kind of fun. It was, I mean, I remember some of those gigs being in the beginning, some of my favorite gigs ever when I walked home with $55 in my pocket, be going, I just played with the guitar player from Loretta Lynn. And yeah. I just played from, you just never know. And, you hand out a card and you hope that they call you. And when they call you, you know you're doing something right because if you don't get called, there's something that you don't got. And so when I started getting those gigs and I was playing four, five, six nights a week in Nashville, every every and working at Pearl Drums from eight to five, I'd go home, 
I'd work from eight to five. I'd get up at you know six o'clock in the morning, take my shower, eat my breakfast, go sit in the cubicle at Pearl Drums and work customer service till five o'clock. I'd go home, I'd grab a shower, I would eat something, and then I would go to a jam or I would go to a gig that you know the the Wooten Brothers at Thurston Lindsley, or I would do something and I would just be seen. And if I yes. got a chance to play, I would play, and people would be going like, "Wow." This boy, hey, you know, and then they take your number and mm-hmm. you not you won't hear even then two months later, you know, man, I saw you do this. Can you do this? And that's just how it evolved. And but, um But let me ask you something, Rick, though, because of the skills that you developed in Wisconsin, you brought that to with you that made people listen. Can you help identify what those things were? Because we can a lot of us come from a place where we are the big fish in a small pond and you have to readjust your thinking when you go to a music town, not necessarily Nashville, you know, as we've mentioned many times, it could be anywhere, Atlanta, New York, LA, whatever. And but there is a skill set beyond playing, beyond chops, beyond those things that we recognize as what makes a great drummer but what makes you a drummer that is desirable for the a band leader a producer uh, to hire you was there something about your experience in Wisconsin with a teacher with your education with your bands that gave you that edge that prepared you for a, a music town man Matt what a great question and thank you so much for asking that because this is exactly um if i can share any insight to anyone a young drummer or old i mean i didn't get my first gig in nashville until i was in my 40s so um you don't have to be young uh yeah to what i can what i can tell you this is exactly what i can tell you is that you know, I grew up on Dave Weckl and Vinny uh, Cayuta, and I taught, I taught all that stuff. Uh, I, I played in drum corps, uh, rudimental head, blah 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 blah. Um, when you get to Nashville, no one gives a dang about any of that. Mm-hmm. No one cares, but you know, you don't hear that on records. And um, thing about it is, I'll never forget. And one of the first gigs that I auditioned for in Nashville was out of one of the local, you know, uh, Nashville scene, I don't know, uh, independent rock thing or something. And they, they sent me, uh, they sent me their, their, uh, their EP and I listened to the songs and I thought, that's pretty cool. It's really cool. So I went there and, uh, first of all, when you go to Nashville, don't show up with a double pedal. They will like, what are you going to do with that? So, I mean, like, just, just leave that at home. I'll tell you that right now. Um, and I have a funny story which I'll share with you later about the Brian Howe gig about that. But, um, but I remember, you know, there was like a, like this, this, uh, this, like, like I said, like indie rock band, very cool. Songs were hip. Um, and they, the bass drum pattern was boom, bap, boom, boom, pop. And so I learned it like the demo. And I went into the audition and I played that. And the guy goes, 
man, can you just play a little less on the bass drum? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, sure, uh, but that's what's on the record. And he goes, yeah, but I don't know. So it went from boom, bah, to boom, boom, bah, to about 10 minutes later, to boom, bah, boom, bah, boom. And they're like, yeah, that's... And so one of the things I learned there is, you know, no one cares about chops. Drummers don't hire drummers. Guitar players hire drummers. Singers hire drummers. Bass players hire drummers. Drummers don't hire drummers. So no one cares about that cool lick you learn. No one cares. Um, and so what I, what I tell a lot of people is like, I think my playing matured so much when I moved to Nashville. Just being growing up and becoming older and learning what my role was as a drummer and what not to play as opposed to what I thought I would play, especially when I started a lot of recording. Like, um, it's kind of funny after I started doing a, a lot of demos and then I got to play on, I played on basically every, the years I was with Cold, I played on all his records and I did a, a few cuts with Gretchen on her records. So I have national uh, artist credits, but it's like one thing I learned is like, like when you're, learning in the studio what you think sounds good and then you listen to it back and you go, wow, maybe that's not exactly what it needs. And that just comes with maturity and and the the, uh, ability to listen to yourself and be critical and going like, I thought that was cool, but that's not really cool. And like I said, listen to a hit record. Are there any tricky bass drum patterns on it? Are there any double stroke anywhere hardly no you know and it's just like so you got to kind of learn what you want to do if you want to play in a uh, a fusion based band and play chops and be uh carter Mulford and you play in that kind of band well then that's great but in nashville they don't want any of that you know and they, they yeah. don't want to hear me i think it's important to note also that sometimes the way drums translate to tape, you know, to use an old term, when recording, uh, it, it simply, simple is better. Uh, and then I, I hear players that played on the record and then perform live, and then sometimes there's a little bit more intensity and delivery in the live performance. Did you have that experience, say, with Colt Ford? You played a certain way in the studio, and then during the live show maybe alter it, maybe add some complexities to your performance? Oh, most certainly. I mean, if you do the same song for the 100th show in a row, you're going to take a little bit of liberties, especially if it's your track that you're embellishing on. Yeah. Of course you are. Mm-hmm. You know, I I mean, and, you know, 90% of the artists um, will even bump up the tempo for life, yeah. you know, unless it's a ballad. I mean, I mean, it's like so... Yeah, it will totally allow you to do that. Um, you know, it was it's interesting. Um, if I can share something with you, um, on one of the cult records, on one of the last records, uh, it's called Declaration of Independence. Um, me and the bass player were the only guys in the band that got to actually play on the record because, um, well, for at least six tracks, because... Um, uh, my God, 
I'm trying to think of the, the guy from Giant, the Dan Huff, yeah. produced six six trumps, six mm-hmm. tracks on that. And he came out to a live performance, and Colt said, I usually use my band on the records, but he goes, I know this is you producing, you use who you want to use. He goes, but, if, you know, you can use any of my band. And he said, I will use your bass player and your drummer. And so I remember going like, I'm getting to record with Dan Huff, which, right. you know, you know, his history, you know, he's, he played the solo on man in the mirror and uh, for Michael Jackson and uh, for white snake. And I mean, you know, just Google the guy. He's just, I mean, he's iconic. And so as much as I'd been in the studio and done that stuff, I was a little, I, I was a little, I ain't going to say nervous, but, tentative of like what to expect to go into the studio with him sure and um so we went in and we recorded drums first and it was so it was such a pleasant experience because he took things from okay we're going to do the intro and we're going to play the intro 10 times 10 different ways and i'll use what i want and now we're going to do the first verse and we're going to do that and then he would say okay leave out the second bass drum on the end of two on this measure and play um, play a flam on that. And then I would do that, and he'd go, okay. So now play it how you would play it. And getting to a point of what I'm saying is that he would do certain – he would take different tracks and kind of mold the track together. Some, some producers want you to play it from left – to the very end and wanted a performance, you know, uh, yeah. so it's all kind of different, but 90% of the time, you know, on the record, they want it fairly simple, unless you can just come up with this fill that knocks them dead. And, and, uh, you know, it's like, wow, that's, that's exactly what it means. But, um, yes, to well, answer your question, yeah. live, you, you do have more liberties because one, it's not on tape and it goes by fast. So, yeah. you know, uh, you have a little bit more liberty. A little bit of energy. As you know. To, to extrapolate from, from your experience with Dan, uh, uh, a couple things I want to pull from that. Did you have a chart that you were making notes to follow his instruction? And uh, how cognizant yeah. were you of the consistency in your snare sound, say backbeat? Uh, as you were doing different sections? Great question. No, um, that's the other thing. Anybody moving to Nashville, uh, you know, Google number chart, Nashville number chart, because you'll you'll have to know that. Um, I, I have a music degree from the University of Missouri, so I, I know chordal changes. I know all that kind of stuff. So I was, I was fortunate enough to have that background that I know what chord charts mean, what one, four, five, and... I know all that, what that means. And, but, you know, for a drummer, a chord chart in Nashville or a number chart basically is just a map of, of structure. It's a form map. And yes, you, you make your own notes. So when I would go and I would listen to a song, I would write down, I would jot down what I thought would be the bass drum, snare drum pattern and put it above that section. And then if it changed into the chorus, I would change that. And, um, I, I would do that throughout the, thing to kind of give me as a guideline if the pattern changed or if there's an intensity built which nine nine times out of ten if you're going from 
the verse to the chorus, you want to build it. And nine times out of ten, the chorus to the bridge, you want to build it or bring it down. Um, so you make those, you make those, those notes, of course. Uh, but I think my, <laughs> excuse me, man, I'm sorry. Um, I think my experience with drum corps and having to match stick height and doing all that stuff really made me consistent of technique. And that is most of your good session players have good technique, meaning they know how to hit the drum consistently in the same spot every time. And that is one thing that I can honestly boast a little bit about that every time I've been in the studio and my track has been isolated, Nine times out of ten, my snare drum is always at the same DB that it, it was the time before. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. like I said, uh, that is just strictly uh, uh, a technique that I know what it feels like to get that consistently. And, you know, um, so, you know, the ghost note thing is is tricky. You just got to play with that. But, I mean, for the general backbeat, I mean, most of the guys that play consistently in the studio have their feel of what it's supposed to be like on two and four. And if you can deliver that, you're going to work, you I, know, because yeah, I think it is in the talent. It's a, it's a, I think it's an instant thing in you, whether you, but it's, it, to me, it just still comes down to good technique. I think that's one thing that we overlook when we have time in the practice room or we're going through that those formative years or you know or whatever that there are things to practice that um are so much more important if you're looking to be a full-time working musician than the vinifil you need to work on how to count in a band with authority uh, and I, I mean, my, my kids laugh at me cause they can hear me if I'm getting ready to do a gig and I'm like, okay, this has a pickup fill in this song and it has to be on point. And so I'm in my room and I'm going one, two, boom, and they can hear me yelling cause I got a, I got this gig where I've got to yell to the bass player halfway across the stage, but I want to be ready for that or the consistency in snare drum, you know? <laughs> I love that analogy because I tell I this goes back to what I was getting ready to tell you earlier, and you are you hit that you you hit a home run with that, um, and you couldn't be more correct uh, if you wrote the book on it. But I'm telling well. you, you are so right because I I remember when I got there to Nashville and I was a year or two in, and I guarantee you, every one of us. That was a big, big, you know, big dog in a uh, big duck in a small pond. Yeah. You get there and you look on and you're like, you watch the CMT Music Awards and you've met that guy playing there a hundred times downtown and go, man, I can play like he does. I can play as good as he does. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's not like those playing, like I said, they're not playing, you know, Vinnie Caliuto. They're just playing time, and you're like. I can do that. Why does he have that gig and I don't? And mm-hmm. here's the thing I can tell you is that you are so right when you say that. And I'm going to give you an exact instance when what you talked about counting off was, was, uh, I mean, you could lose your gig in a minute, but, um, 
when I when I like I said, I got there and I got to know VCs and they were friends and they were great drummers. Don't get me wrong, but I'm thinking to myself, I can do this. Why are they on TV and why am I not? And then when I got that opportunity for that first bit, my my first gig with Kristen, I mean, it went skyrocket. I mean, when I joined her, she had 30 gigs in a month. We had 130 gigs, and then we were on tour with Brooks and Dunn playing stadiums, and then Kenny Chesney, and we were on every TV award show and blah, blah, blah. And so I, I looked back at that and go, <clears throat> why couldn't I have got this sooner? I wouldn't have been prepared for it sooner. Even though I was, I, I wasn't any of a better drummer, I wasn't mature enough to know what it took to do that so that when you're on the Ellen DeGeneres show yes. or you're on the ABC awards show, and the producer is standing side stage and they're counting you with their finger and they're looking and you're like, okay, I can't start it off too fast. I got to make sure everybody in the band hears me. Mm-hmm. I got to make sure I know. It's like all of a sudden that Pat Boone, Debbie Boone becomes a lot less, I mean, a lot more important than it was when you're playing it in the ball. Because oh, I mean, yeah. Yeah. you screw that up. And it's as simple as you've done it a hundred times, yeah. but you're on live TV. Yes. You screw that up. So that's why those guys have those kids because they have the maturity and the, the, just the, the ability to handle that stress. Because I mean, to tell you anything can happen, go to hit your quick track to get the tempo. And all of a sudden the battery goes dead or something. And you go, Oh my God, what, where, where, you know, and it's like all of us, you know, energy levels are so different from gig to gig. Sometimes if you put a fast song behind a ballad, it's very easy to make it sound really, really fast, you know, because it's like, it's such a time difference. Or if you put a ballad behind a fast song, it's, it's like, so our quick track is our friend just to give us reference, but not, if not everybody on that stage has a quick track, Yes. It's, it's like every hard yeah. different time. So it is your job to when it comes out across that that PA or that TV speaker or whatever it is that it feels right. And if you don't do it, what is somebody behind you that's willing to do it? You know. So that is the most important thing. And you are so right to practice that. I never practiced that, but <laughs> God bless you because I mean it well, is it is. Very yeah. dynamic thing when you're at sea. Now, for the record, I have to say I have to credit Billy Ward with that because he uh, is is just he's a guru when it comes to shedding some light on important things that a lot of us forget. When uh, so, like I said, I've been here for the last couple of years. And I I was uh, fortunate to get the call about playing with Brian. Uh, with Bad Company and uh, oh, Bad Company, and uh, I had used the same writer for years. And so when the management called me and um, asked me for my backline requirements put on the writer, but like I said, everything's a flag date. I just kind of sent out my usual generic backline list, and on that backline list was a double pedal. Mm-hmm. And uh, Brian, which I didn't know, but Brian is also a drunk uh, in his youth. And uh, so 
I sent that out about a, an hour later. Now, mind you, I hadn't met anyone at this time. I had not met anyone in the organization, <laughs> but I had got hired, and, and they're like, okay, send me your rider here's a, so I can send out backline requirements for the first show. And like I said, there was a double pedal on that rider, and within the hour, <laughs> I got copied on a email from Brian to his management and it said, and he had highlighted, uh, you know, DW double bass drum pedal. And I, I, you'll, you'll have to laugh at this. I, I was like, he highlighted that. And then above that, he said, if I hear any of this nonsense behind me, shit will be thrown. <laughs> and, what he, what he and I was like, that is, that is so fun. Because, you know, you think about it. You don't hear any double bass drum patterns in Adjum. No. So I I thought it was pretty funny, you know, but he was like, if I hear any of this nonsense behind you, shit will be thrown. And, and I was great. like I thought it was I thought it was iconic. I thought, wow. I, I'm like, I know I'm gonna get along with him from this. Was, <laughs> how funny is that? I mean, you know, <laughs> what would you think? You're 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 getting a new gig and you put your rider out there and the and the guy writes that back to you. And I'm like, okay. So I wrote back, okay, no double pedal. <laughs> <laughs> no problemo. I, I saw you, you've done some work with uh, playing with the Zen drum. Uh, and can you tell us some about that? Because I don't think we've ever discussed that on the podcast before. But it's been around for a long time. And, you know... Future Man is iconic for using it, and and I just kind of wonder: do, do you still have uh, space to to use something like that, or record with it, or write with it? Oh, thank you so much for this question. Um, I use it probably now sixty or seventy percent of the time I'm playing really? <laughs> with my gigs here. Okay, I really do. I, I really do. Um, uh, David Haney of Zendrum has been a friend of mine forever. Um, there, there was a gentleman when I first moved to Nashville, um, that, um, that uh, kind of introduced me to all of that. But, but prior to that, when I was in, when I was in, um, Wisconsin, I used to, I mean, like I, I'm a lead singer. So I sang 80% of the stuff in that band and I would front the band. And I would usually have a percussion player who would come back behind the drum set and play, and I would go out front sing. When he left, I couldn't find anybody. So when I went to a NAMM show, I saw this, and this was in the 90s. I saw this instrument, and I'm like, I wonder if uh, if that's something that I could maybe, you know, do. I, I don't know. So I bought one, and I worked on it, and I got pretty proficient on it, and I started using it locally in my band, and... People started freaking out about it. And then, so I would come out and I would play it and I would come out front and sing and, and I could play drum set on it. I mean, there's no right or wrong way to play the thing. And anyone who probably owns one can tell you no two people play it the same way because it's basically a MIDI controller with 27 or they even have more buttons now on a piece of wood that you can program individual sounds to each each button yeah. and how you play that button is how you uh, play percussion parts, you know, drum set parts, whatever you, what do you want to call it? 
And so you have to MIDI it to a sound source. There's no sound in it. At least there wasn't now. Now they offer, it's, it's advanced so much since when I bought it. But so I thought, well, what the heck do I got to lose? So I did it, got pretty proficient on it. I would sit down with records and go, okay, how would I play this? And then I would try to map out the buttons accordingly. So I used it a lot in my cover band in Wisconsin. When I moved to Nashville, you know, for a few years, I'm like, well, there would be no need for that there. Well, then I started playing locally in a little three-piece, playing happy hour at a you know local bar, blah, blah, blah. And, I, and these guys were great. They were kind of an acoustic kind of setting. And I said, man, I got something I think would really big. Let me come in, bring it in next week, and I'll play for free. Just let me see. Well, they freaked out about it, and then two years later, I was still playing with that band and making really good money doing it. So that's uh, so that was on a local level. I got the gig with Gretchen. Of course, I never used it with her. There was no really need for that. Did play with Ty Hearn and play with Thompson Square. Play with that. So for years, I didn't play it. Then I got the gig with Colt Ford, and you know, Colt, if you like, if you know his song "Dirt Road Anthem." Uh, yeah. Not the Jason Aldean version, but the original version with him and Brantley Gilbert. Okay. You know, those are all like my DJ tracks. And so they have 808s and they have all these electronic kind of sounds. And so I landed on that. I said, man, you should let me play that on this. Well, he did. He loved it. Started working it into a part of the show. So it became like I used to play, oh, I don't know, two or three songs set with Colt on it in stadiums. I mean, I played that on the Luke Bryan tour. I mean, we, we, you know, we just, we played that in stadiums. And so people, it's just visually very stunning. You know, people go like, what the heck is it? And, uh, if you get it through a, you know, a, a PA in the stadium, I mean, you hit an 808 and That's awesome. the goal post. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's awesome. So <laughs> we used it during that. And it, it was just a, you know, a, a part of the show. So when I moved to Florida, I was like, man, what better way to go and play at a tiki bar by the beach and shorts and flip-flops with my Zen drum and, and uh, started using it and people just freaked out about it. They love it. And uh, all the people love it. And uh, I have to say, you know, I mean, I feel like I'm pretty proficient on it um, and I make it sound like a drum set or, I, it, or it wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't use it. Uh, but it's great it's a great thing to do for like small gigs and people love it so that's if cool you, if no one's ever took that out i would totally check out the zen drum it's amazing this episode is brought to you by drumsellers.com the niche marketplace where drummers drum retailers and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear list your drums for sale for free and the only fee is four percent if it sells simple Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at drumsellers.com. I try to stay active. I'm not as, uh, I, I used to work out four or five days a week. I can't say I honestly do that anymore. And, uh, I, you know, and it's like, I always try to be health conscious, but it's hard, you know, when you're older and what we do, it's very hard to do. So yes, I stay active, but you know, drumming, like, as you said, in general is physical, you know, and it's like, uh, I'm very fortunate that like, uh, you know, like when I play on an artist gig, I, I play 75 to 90 minutes. So that's not that awful demanding. You know I mean? I can, mm-hmm. I feel like I can still stay up with that. 
the hard part is the traveling. I mean, you know, it's yes. the traveling is the hard part, you know, and it's like you try to make good decisions, but, you know, it's like, you know, you're just everything that you do is social, whether it's eating, drinking, uh, staying up late, you know, it's like, so it's like, it's very hard to have a regiment that is good. And I think, um, like my wife teases me. She's like, I, I really think that like when we go somewhere, she's like, I really feel like I need to put a day sheet on the refrigerator. So, cause I'm always asking, what are we doing? Where are we doing it? What are we doing? You know? And, and so I think of us musicians that have had that life you kind of get up and you look at the day sheet and go, okay, I got to be here. I got to do that. And, um, so yes. And, you know, and yes and no. And, um, you know, we had talked, uh, in our previous, uh, kind of like pre-interview conversation and I hope you don't mind me, uh, steering it a little bit this way, but you know, I, but well, one thing that I wanted to say is that, like I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to find myself being a 57 year old man this year. And, uh, feeling like, you know, and I really didn't even start playing in national artists until I was in my early 40s, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, so, which is really kind of behind the game when you think about it, but there again, I don't know if I would have been immature and ready enough to play that, and then I look this morning and I see the Rolling Stones on the Today Show, and I'm like, well, look at that, you know, I mean, uh, what do I have to complain about, but but it's like one thing, anybody that wants to do this as a career and stuff, man, you know, please follow your heart. I think it's um, it's an amazing opportunity. Be true to yourself, uh, you know, whether you think you have the, not only the means and the knowledge, but the, just the, the rejection, the, the ability to take rejection, criticism, being able to fight through that, knowing, you know, you, you know, drummers have to be a little, and I don't want to use the word arrogant because that's not what I'm saying at all, Mm -hmm. but you have to be self-confident. You cannot, you cannot be a little, you can't be not confident and drive the bus on a level of what we have to do. Because I mean, you got to go, this is where the tempo is and I'm going to shove it down your throat and you're going to take it. And this is what it is. And when they say it's wrong, you better say, oh, I don't think so. Or learn, you know, I mean, be be bendable, but you also have to be assertive. You have to have a backbone and you have to be able to, to withstand criticism. You have to be able to withstand judgment because I don't care how good you are. Somebody's going to think you suck. And, and, and there's going to be something that you're not doing right. But you know, if you get at the end of the day, if you're getting calls and you're getting work, you're doing something right. So what I was gonna I was gonna say as at my age, you know, twenty years ago, I was playing the Grammys, I was playing the Super Bowl, I was playing that you just never think it's going to end. You're living life, you're living you're living outside of reality. I mean, honestly, you just get up and your food is there for you, you get shuttered here you get sheltered there you get i mean and it's just like you don't think of the end game and i think too many of us myself included get caught up in that and go okay now i'm in my 50s and if i'm not part of a band that's 
successful, if I'm a side man or if I'm doing this, one, how can I sustain this? Who's going to hire me? And what can I do to make a living at this point? Because let's face it, a lot of it's a young man's game, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, like I have an amazing resume for a drummer, but, um, I don't know if I could get hired at Lowe's, you know? I mean, if I just, it's like one of those things. So if I could give any advice to any people out there listening that want to take on this or that are doing this as a career, if you're in a lucrative situation, man, think think ahead. Because it's not if it ends, it's when it ends. Because it all ends. It all ends. Um, and so that's the one thing I guess I wish somebody would have told me when I had all this expendable income in my bank account going, you know what, you should maybe put some of that back or maybe you should think about investing this this, or doing something a little different. You know, um, we don't think about that or maybe, maybe other people do. I didn't think about that. Sure. And I go, sure. But I mean, you know, I mean it's, what are you doing? But I mean, you've talked about some things that you've done. I mean, you've you've been able to find some work and 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 find the people you want to work with down in Florida. You seem like you've been very intentional about creating a lifestyle that works for you, and 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 you can balance uh, playing and and your time with your wife. So, I mean, where do you see changes coming your way in the next ten years or so? You know, my friend, I wish I knew. I, I, mm-hmm. I get up every morning thinking about that. What do I what do I do next? Um, um, I'm very blessed that when usually one door closes, another one has opened when I just least expected it. Yeah. And I'd like to think that there's a thing called karma uh, about that. Um, uh, but in the end result, you know, karma doesn't pay the bills. So, um, you, I, you know, that's one thing, like I said, I found down here there's music everywhere down here because you're on a beach. I mean, someone is playing just like in Nashville, but I mean, you could probably make more money down here playing at the beach from one to three than, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I haven't been in Nashville forever, but I just know that it's a hard, it's a hard road to, to to play Broadway on, on Nashville. I mean, you may be very successful and make a ton of money, but it's going to be hard on you. You're going to be working a lot. And, uh, yeah. When you get this age, it's about quality of life and being home with your family and stuff. And all I'm saying is that just think ahead of that a little bit. Because, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I ain't sitting on, uh, you know, a million dollars in my bank account uh, waiting to retire. I'm not doing that by any means. And I, I guess if I would have thought differently mm-hmm. back then, mm-hmm. uh, I may not even have to work as hard as I do now. But, um, you know, it's like, but it's, it's not just me. It's musicians in general. Almost everybody I know my age is no one's rich. No one's living the life of, you know, I mean, it's like everyone's still doing what they love, but, it, but it's still, it's, it's an, you just never know when your next gig's coming, you know, I mean, you just never, you know, um, and uh, so that's just something to think about, you know, as you get older, um, what am I going to do? When this ends, well, when when I quit playing this stadium tour, what what happens next? What happens if I get fired next week? Um, right, right. It happens to me. I didn't know. You know, my last gig with Golden was the Letterman show, and then I get a call. We're going in a different direction, and she fired half the band. 
I didn't do anything. Right. All of a sudden, I'm on TV. The next minute, I'm not. I don't even have a game. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's just a it's a different mindset for sure. I think some of those things you mentioned, like investing and trying to think ahead when you're making money, because there is there's very little consistency and it's very unpredictable from a financial standpoint. It all makes sense, and it seems clear we need to be reminded, uh, but that is very wise. The other thing, uh, I had a conversation a couple years ago with an old band leader I used to work with who just had a second or third heart attack, um, had, a, had a rocky first marriage, had a, a daughter that he was not speaking with anymore, just a rough life, and he was coming to some revelations in his life for obvious reasons, and he was maybe mid-60s. And he said, man, I spent so much time investing in music that I failed to invest in relationships and my family. And he goes, everyone that I speak to back in Kansas City, where he was, where he cut his teeth, that invested in their family and their relationships are still are happy and healthy and 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 it's like just don't forget that man you know he was warning me like don't follow the path that i followed yeah i mean i know you're passionate about what you do but don't ever forget that because relationships can last forever but music like we've been talking about here it has it has a life to it well I mean, very wise. I mean, that's, yes, I, I agree. There's many times when I wish, I, th I think back and um, me from right out of college, I can honestly tell you, Matt, that every dollar I have made has had to deal with the drum. Mm -hmm. Either I've sold them, I've made them, or I've played them. Um, <laughs> and it's like everything else I do. So I kind I mean, I wish I had another craft because like your friend, and I think like all of us at this point, you know, it's like, God, this sounds terrible, but it's like, you know, it's like when you've, I hardly listen to music radio anymore. I listen to talk radio. I hardly do that because it's like every song I hear, I've heard a million times or I've played it a million times. Um, and so like, it's very new. It's very rare that I find something new occasionally that, that will inspire me to listen to music. But it's like um, there's a lot of times when I I look at my drums as that's work. Mm -hmm. I didn't get I didn't start drums thinking they were work. They were a passion. When you do it for 40 years to make a living, it becomes work. And I don't care what it is. I mean, I, I've heard actors and actresses talk about you know they're in their 50s and 60s going like you know what I think I just want to retire and they're like. Oh my God, you're so good. How can you think of that? Yeah. yeah. Well, you've been something 40 years. You know, maybe there's something else you'd like to do. You know, um, and I kind of wish I knew something else to do. And I, I think sometimes I, I still, like, if I could think of something, but at the end of the day, I mean, there's nothing better than picking up a pair of drumsticks or picking up my Zen drum and playing with my friends and making music and right. getting, handled, getting handed money. So yeah. I, I'm not say what was me because i mean like i said i've been blessed and and uh i you know i guess I, i'm so thankful i mean just the fact that you want to talk to me is a, is a oh man blessing. i appreciate you your know, time. i mean 
For sure. I'm just saying, would they even be considered with the amongst the people that you've had on your podcast and Man, and you, all my peers and yeah, all, all yeah. the talent that you've that you've talk, spoken with? I mean, even having Rick Brothers in your vocabulary is a, <laughs> it, Man, it's an honor to me. Yeah, thank oh, you, thank you for saying that. But no, seriously, there's so much that's I mean, so much you're saying that's been said for the first time. Uh, over these, you know, this will be episode 224 or 225. I'm not really sure, but no, seriously, these are important things to consider. These are realities that are always, uh, that aren't always easy to discuss. Uh, but I love that you say there are actors that we all like, how can you do this? Like, how can you not want to act? You're, you're so good at it. And those are things those are things and ideas that I pushed back against for so long but I think if you have a healthy perspective on on kind of this arc of life and 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 how to manage the different stages of life to to make sure that you're doing what's best for you and those that you care for the most is is probably so important it will bring you back around to wanting to play, to experience music, to do those things that makes life so special. But just don't be surprised when that hits you later in life and you're like, man, why don't I want to play drums today? It's like, it's okay. Well, think, think about it, my friend. Uh, who ever thought uh, Neil Peart would come out and say, I'm not playing drums anymore? Yeah, well, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but but see, me being such a a rush, a huge rush fan, like I know that like when he first went on the road in 1974, it only took him a couple tours to realize, you know what, this isn't for me. Like he knew that, he knew that early on, so that didn't surprise me. But yeah, as fans, when people were like, "Come on, man," and I'm like, "Dude, leave him alone." Like, <laughs> yeah, well, my point going like, you know, I I quit, and you're like, how could you quit? You know when. He, he was, uh, you know, he's an icon, and he was yeah. probably years and one of our biggest influences growing up. Yeah. And but you know, to me, I I read I read the article and go, I get it, I oh, totally yeah. get it. Yeah. I mean, it's like like I tell you, man, there's like when I first moved to Nashville, Matt, I I went there going, I, I was like, here's the other thing, and I'll leave you with this. Um, Here's the thing I can honestly say, if anyone who's aspiring to do this and moving to Nashville or moving to L.A. or New York or any major music, Austin music hub that you want to go to do, I don't care if you're 20 or you're 40, you have to go there hungry. You have to go there hungry because you will not survive if you're not hungry because it takes that. It takes every night. I can't tell you how many times. I would have worked. I got up at six o'clock. I was at my desk at the drums at eight in the morning, got off at five o'clock, went home, went out, tired as hell, but went out, uh, went to that jam, got in my car, drove 30 minutes, went to the next jam, waited 45 minutes, played a song, went to the next jam, and it'd be 1030, and I did a text or 11 o'clock and did a text from Buddy goes, hey, so-and-so's at this club, you should come down. And I, I would be literally at a stop sign going, I'm going to turn left and go home and go to bed and get up at six in the morning, or I'm going to turn right and go meet my buddy and meet this guy. And I would turn right 
and I would go and I'd get home at two in the morning and I'd get up at six o'clock. How many times I would do that and go, Oh, because I went there that led to a gig that led to another gig that led to another, you know, that's how, that's how you network and that's how you become one of those inside people that hear about those gigs that aren't advertised in the paper. And so it is, you've got to be hungry. And I was hungry when you've done it for 20 years in Nashville. And I, you know, and I left the cold gig and I've been home going like, well, I could go out and find another artist gig, but I wasn't hungry. I wasn't hungry. I was tired. I was burnt out. I was like, I just did 200 shows last year and played on all the records. And even when I was home, I was exhausted. Yeah. I'm like, and if you're not hungry, it's not like they don't want to hire you. You're just out of sight, out of mind. you got to be in their face every day. Because every time I would go out, every time I would get off my butt and get on the, off the couch and go downtown, they'd go, Rick, dude, I haven't seen you in two years. <laughs> I thought, you know, I... I just assume you're busy. I, that's why I don't call you. Hey, can you do a gig next week? Yep. I would always get a gig out of it when I went downtown. Yeah. But it was harder and harder and harder to go downtown. And I'm like, if you want to be in a, a, an atmosphere like that, it's it's possible. But you gotta you gotta be hungry. Things happen the way they're supposed to happen because if I would have probably got that Gretchen audition. Two years earlier, I wouldn't have been prepared, prepared to handle. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have had the maturity to do it. Yeah. You know, and um, mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, I, I don't know. It's like that. You know, you're out there in it. I, Nashville's changed a lot, hasn't it? It has, in good and bad ways, um, and so it's as it always does. It's a, uh, it's a living thing. Uh, you can you can grow with it, but I mean it's such a diverse and large industry that I think if you find your people, uh, you'll you'll be fine. And I think that uh, if you came back tomorrow, you would, I think you would find your people and and make it work for you. But uh, at the same time, I do completely understand this idea of of removing yourself from the environment to kind of find something different and and you know inspirational because it it doesn't matter what you do here it's still more about the business than it is about the music and uh, i didn't grow up here in nashville i grew up in a town where the arts was what you did and uh and music was art and that's not really Nashville, but I knew that coming in because I wanted to make a living playing music. There are definitely exceptions to the rule here, but I think um, when you live in a town where it's music business, not the arts, uh, you just there's just sacrifices that have to be made. So when I think of, of playing and creating and later in life, uh, I think about maybe getting back to uh, more about the arts than than it as a business, if that makes any sense. That is one of the most intelligent ways I've ever heard it put. Well, and um, <laughs> seriously, I, I I I I will use that because I mean, listening to listening to you and and I'm thinking things while you're talking and and sharing that with me. 
I mean, I wish I could have put it that way because that is so, so true. And, uh, I, and like I said, I'll leave you with it. But, you know, I have a friend of mine. You know Jason Jordan? Yes, I do. Yeah, I just met him like a year ago, a year and a half ago. Jason, a dear friend of mine. He's a monster player. I played with him with Sarah Johns and Ty Herndon and Thompson Clare and, uh, yeah. you know, uh, just a monster guitar player. And he had hired me to do this, this gig with uh, a gentleman that took us out to uh, Colorado, out to Telluride. And uh, uh, it, it, it was a one-off thing. It was very fun. But we were, he had rented out this theater in Telluride, and we were going to open for this band that was, I guess, an East Coast, kind of a jam band thing, traveled in their van, you know, kind of thing. But uh, awesome. I wish I could tell you what the band was because they were awesome. Um, but we were going to do our sound check, and they were doing their sound check. And, and uh, this band had got out of probably an eight-hour van ride, got there, set up their gear, and they had about an hour and a half sound check. I mean, running through harmonies, doing all this kind of stuff. And we were sitting out watching them and not only inspired by their ability and their talent, but just by the just by the attitude and the fervor that they were that they had in you know they had like us, I, you know, on an eight-hour bus ride on a million-dollar tour bus, take me to the hotel. I'm tired. Get me the hell out of here. You know, I mean, but these guys were like running an hour and a half rehearsal after driving in a van and trailer, and and working on their craft and stuff. And uh, Jason said something to me that I will never forget. He looked at me. We were sitting there watching them, and just like I said, we were just floored by their ability and their just the overall attitude of positiveness that they had and their love for their, their music. And, and he looked at me and he goes, man, you know, we would still feel like that if we had never moved to Nashville. Mm, and interesting. kind of hit me going like, that's everything that took me to Nashville. And as soon as I got to Nashville and got on the, as you quoted, business level of it, where it's a business. Yeah. He's losing sight of, then it's like, what do you mean we don't have catering at tour? What do you mean we don't have this room? What do you mean we don't have, like, you get, get lose sight of all of that. And, uh, what, how you, how you stated that just a while ago was perfect. I mean, I think you're exactly right. I think it's just important. I mean, just, just the reality of it, just like, if this is what you want to do, this is what's involved. And uh, if it's not for you, don't do it or create some balance. Well, exactly. Yeah, well, of course. Yeah, but no, I mean, uh, I wish that I, I wish I had got to know you more when I was there and I uh, got to hung out because it, it, you, you seem like uh, you, you seem like you're, you're, you're grounded in, in a lot of the same beliefs and uh, sure. sentiment that I have as well. And uh, but this is a I, good I wish I'd have got to well, this is a good opportunity, and man, this is again the the, the I say this uh, so many times. The podcast gives me I've, has I've learned so much from it, and and I probably if, if has not much, if more so than a lot of our listeners that I just appreciate it so much, and it gives me a healthy perspective and a lot more peace. 
at uh, at what I'm doing and what I'm trying to do uh, with this. Well, that's cool. Yeah, but dude, I'm gonna let you go. But I appreciate it so much. I'm, I'm humbled, and thank you for thinking of me. And I, I, I really, I can't thank you enough. And I'll, I'll make sure I share it. And uh, I appreciate your time. Sure, dude. I'll talk to you soon. All right, my friend. Thank you. Okay. See you, man. Bye. Sure, bud. Bye, bye. So there you go, my conversation with Rick. I want to thank him for talking to us about life after Nashville. We talked so much about how to get into the Nashville scene, how to survive in a scene like Nashville uh, that I, I hope is helpful to you. But it's also nice to see uh, people kind of carve their own path, and sometimes that involves moving away from uh, a scene like Nashville or any other type of music city. I appreciate his insight. Uh, We are super excited about the growth in our Patreon page. Uh, We picked up a couple new patrons in the last couple weeks. So we have a new patron, and uh, I asked if I could read the message that he sent to us. This message comes from Miguel Lyons Cubasos, and here's what he says. First off, I love, love your podcast. I've been devouring it on my commute to and from gigs over the four to six weeks. I'm a gigging drummer in L.A., so that means lots of commute time. Great, great stuff. In fact, I'm playing in a country cover band, and I was telling a friend yesterday that I feel more connected to the Nashville drummer scene due solely to your podcast than I do to L.A. drummers. This does not reflect well on my networking skills, but it is a compliment to your podcast. We all appreciate so much that communication with us, letting us know what we're doing. Of course, you know, we do have interviews with many drummers outside of Nashville, of course, that Zach is able to provide. And uh, I've got some interviews coming up with Daniel Glass and Todd Sukerman. So I'm real excited about that. But regarding Zach Albetta's interview next week, stay tuned for his interview with Johnny Radelette. Gary Clark Jr.'s drummer. We thank you so much for listening and keep in touch and I hope to see you around. Bye-bye.